I remember what Elizabeth Elliot said when she was looking back at that night when it was clear that she had become a widow and her husband Jim Elliot and others had been martyred. She said that the Lord preserved her through the night with the memory of hymns, hymns that just came over and over again to her mind and ministered to her heart. And I give us some more testimony. I, uh, I would not know how to survive without the hymns of the church. I'm so thankful for them. And I'm thankful for, uh, for the hymn we just sang, He Will Hold Me Fast. I'm thankful we get to sing those words and mean those words. And I'm, I'm honored to be here with all of you and honored to be with, Chris, with uh, Keith and Kristen Getty. Um, I genuinely believe that believers will be singing in Christ alone for centuries to come if the Lord tarries. And so I feel a little bit like what it must have been like to see Charles Wesley lead one of his own hymns, and that's no small thing in the midst of days of no small things. Well, we're here for the Shepherds Conference 2019. A part of what it means to come to this conference is to be reminded that where you find preachers, you find readers. Where you find readers, you find books. Where you find gatherings of preachers, you find gatherings of books. It's not an accident. And uh, the Shepherds Conference pulls together some of the very best books for preachers. And I wrote the foreword to one of them that is available here. I just want to draw to your attention. It's entitled Susie. It's by Ray Rhodes. And I wrote the foreword to the book because it's a marvelous story. Yesterday in the afternoon session, I talked about the fact you really can't explain Luther without his Katie. Uh, I'll just give my personal testimony again. Uh, I cannot imagine my ministry without my dear Mary. But many people don't know the story of Susanna Spurgeon, the uh, faithful and loving and extremely thoughtful and pious wife of Charles Spurgeon. And Ray Rhodes has done us all the service of writing her biography. And uh, I, I want to turn to you preachers and turn to men and say, many of you don't read enough biographies of godly women. And that would help you in your ministry for roughly half your congregation. And uh, just a word to the wise, uh, you will find this biography very encouraging and very godly. Uh, also, you, you may notice in your program, I was surprised by something in the, in the program. It's uh, in the listings of books. There is a very unique set of books listed there and available in the bookstore here. And I'm told the last few sets on earth. How's that for a setup? Um, it's Richard Muller's Post-Reformation Reform Dogmatics. It is just, it's indispensable if you want to look at the uh, developments after the Reformation, when so many of the theological gains of the Reformation were systematized and argued. It's, uh, it's available here. I was asked to mention it. I am uh, glad to mention it. And uh, you have been told they are rare. So, just a word to the wise. Last year, 2018, uh, I marked my 25th anniversary at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary as president, and folks were just incredibly gracious. They, uh, they, were, they were so kind. They, they uh, celebrated it, 
commemorated it. And uh, it was just a wonderful, wonderful event. I was just very, very thankful. And to be honest, I felt pretty proud of a 25-year tenure in a business that averages about four and a half to six years. So I thought, well, that's 25 years. Then I come here. <laughs> and uh, that was 2018. Then in 2019, it's like John MacArthur says, I'll meet your 25 <laughs> and double it. And uh, that's, that's effectively, I'm, I'm, I'm here thinking, this is, uh, this is a race I am destined to lose. That just points again to the unprecedented nature, at least, uh, in, in a church with a, a ministry as this church has had, with a pulpit, the influence this pulpit has had through a, a half century. And I'm just thinking back to 1969, I, I, I was 10 years old then. And uh, in 1969, Richard Nixon began his tenure as president the same year John MacArthur began his tenure as pastor of Grace Community Church. Let that be a parable unto you. <laughs> All eyes of the world were on Richard Nixon in 1969. That did not go well. But just consider how the Lord has honored the preaching of His Word in this place through five centuries. By the way, it was the year that, uh, of, of Apollo 11, which is what I remembered more at the time from 1969, Neil Armstrong, Man on the Moon. And uh, just because I was curious, I looked it up, and a gallon of gasoline cost 32 cents. Not the case anymore. But just think about 50 years, and I look out. I, when, when I considered my 25th anniversary, I realized that that meant I had served as president longer than most of my students had been alive. That's a certain humbling kind of realization, and, and it also comes with a realization that's a tipping point. There's no going back. That's not going to change. But when you think about 50 years of ministry, successive generations shaped by the Word of God is so powerfully and faithfully preached in this one place. When I think of my dear friend, Dr. John MacArthur, I think of constancy and consistency. Those aren't exactly the same thing. If you don't know the difference, look it up. I don't have time. <laughs> constancy and consistency, conviction and courage and character. And I thank you for modeling all of those for us. And the relentless word by word, verse by verse, text by text, book by book, exposition of Holy Scripture. And just in conclusion, because uh, I have to get to my assignment of preaching the Word of God and saying thanks, I just want to say that I want to speak for so many in this room who would not know who we are, and we would not know our ministries as they are without your influence. So thank you. Thank you. I want to invite you to turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings chapter 18. As you're opening your Bibles, you already know this text, or at least you know the narrative that is at the heart of this text. We will begin reading in verse 17, and you will know that this is the turning point in this passage, a passage with many turning points. 1 Kings chapter 18, beginning at verse 17. 
When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go on limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made, and at noon Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bowl in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, 
he is God. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. This is God's Word. Every word of it. It is God's Word to us. You do know this text. This is, uh, this is one of those texts that just about anyone who knows any story from the Old Testament knows. And, and it fits a certain predilection in us, and, and perhaps exaggerated in this generation, which we might call the age of the superhero in popular culture. The biggest selling, vastest grossing motion pictures that have made the most money in recent years have been superhero or now superheroine movies. It tells us something about our particular moment in time that we long for, something the previous generations markedly also longed for, but in an increasingly, an increasingly intense way. It says nothing, of course, about the imaginary superheroes. It says a great deal about us. But this is not a superhero story, and we'll find that out soon enough. The first clue is how... Elijah is identified in chapter 17, verse 1. He is identified as Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead. You don't know where that is, and that is the point. <laughs> Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead, a prophet who has arisen only because of the, the calling of God only because of the prophetic mantle that God has put upon him. Tishbe produces Tishbites, <laughs> not prophets. Until now, until now. This is not a superhero. This does not begin in some kind of superhero context. This is, this is, not, this is not a superhero story. It's an Old Testament historical narrative. It's very important when we consider the text of Scripture we're going to preach that we know what genre of literature this is. Now, let's be very, very careful. Let's look each other in the face. This is Old Testament historical narrative. What does that mean? It means that we believe it happened just as is recorded here in space, in time, and history. This is not a once-upon-a-time story. This is the completely inspired, infallible, and inerrant Word of God. It is making not only a claim that this narrative is meaningful, it is making the prior claim that this narrative happened. And furthermore, this narrative in God's authoritative revealed revelation, the Holy Scripture, is given to us, and thus we must own all of it. All of it. All the way down to the brook Kishon. And, and, and this means that we need all of it. We are to own this entire text, and we can't run from any part of it. Some of you are familiar with the recent General Conference of the United Methodist Church. Uh, I've written quite a bit about it. It's, uh, it, it is and will continue to be a very big deal. The future of that denomination, which has been so characteristically marked, uh, marked by, at least in its leadership, liberal theology for so long. It's an amazing story of how in the providence of God, so many churches 
and Methodists have joined from other parts of the world, far more conservative, that uh, it, it's, it's doing the unexpected. It actually, we, we don't know where this is going. There's a big fight still to remain. But at the very least, just in recent days in St. Louis, that denomination did not deny Scripture by its largest vote. Okay, so what kind of arguments led up to it? Oh, I want to share with you an argument that was made by the pastor of the biggest United Methodist Church there is. His name is Adam Hamilton, and uh, he's an author of many books that have sold a great deal. He's obviously a good communicator, otherwise he wouldn't be pastor of the largest ever United Methodist Church. It's located in Kansas. Well, he, he in anticipation of this, in writing about Scripture, he said that all Scripture needs to be carefully distributed in our minds, divided between three different buckets, three different buckets of Scripture. Now, notice the, the argument. Pay attention because this is important. He said the first bucket would be made up of texts that we decide never did express the will of God. Okay, hold on. There is a second bucket, he says, of texts that at one time did express the genuine will of God, but no longer do. And then there is a third bucket made up of texts that always have and always will express the perfect will of God. Now, understand how convenient that would be. If you're trying to make peace with a secularizing society, living in outright moral rebellion, how convenient would it be to be able to say, well, yeah, that's in the Scripture, but it belongs in bucket one. It never was binding upon God's people any place, any time. It was a misunderstanding. It's a misrepresentation of God. God, as revealed in X, would not do Y, even though the Scripture says He did. It would also be very convenient if we could take some texts of Scripture and put them in what he calls that second bucket. We can say, oh, yes, it was binding at one time. At one time, this expressed the will of God, but God changed His mind or at a different time revealed himself in a contradictory way to the way he'd revealed himself prior. Again, that would be very convenient because we could look at a lot of texts in Scripture that, uh, that, that, that the secular society just hates. And, and we could say, well, if it doesn't belong in bucket one, it probably belongs in bucket two. And then bucket three, well, we can leave that for all the verses we like. The verses we'll just say of always and ever will express the will of God. You understand the disaster of the very suggestion. All of Scripture is inspired by God. Every word of Scripture is in bucket three. <laughs> One of the problems in the entire suggestion is you've got to have, you got to figure out who has the supposed knowledge to figure out what bucket a different text is supposed to go in. And uh, the, the whole thing is just an absolute disaster. But given what we know about the inerrancy and the infallibility of the Word of God, it's all bucket three. This, this is God's will always and forevermore. The God of Elijah, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is His expressed will. Well, I began not arbitrarily at verse 17. We're going to look at several movements in the text. This is not the kind of sermon that has points because historical narratives generally don't have points. 
their unfolding narrative, but they do have movements. And so I'm going to suggest five different movements in this text. The first movement in the text of our consideration is when Ahab confronts Elijah. Now, there's a very interesting verse before this, and you know the background that begins in chapter 18, verse 1, uh, where you have the, the, the pre-story to the actual confrontation between Ahab and Elijah. My favorite verse, it's the, it's the last part of verse 16. Let's just take the whole verse, because it's, it's a perfect hinge on which this all turns. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, told him that Elijah was coming. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and then these words, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. Okay, something is about to happen. The king is about to go meet the prophet, and this is not a friendly greeting. Who will be talking about with King Ahab? Well, just consider chapter 16, verses 29 to 34. We're told that Ahab did evil in the sight of the Lord, more evil than all who were before him. That is a spectacular statement. But it's sustained within chapter 16 by reminding us that Ahab, as if it had been a light thing, walked in the sins of Jeroboam. Now, what were the sins of Jeroboam. Well, actually, they were many, but looking at 1 Kings chapter 12, verses 25 to 33, you come to understand that Jeroboam returned Israel to idolatry and actually made two golden calves and set them up for Israel, saying, Behold your gods, O Israel. That's verse 28 of chapter 12. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. The astounding nature of the idolatry of Jeroboam was not only to set up a golden calf, but to set up two, and then to make the statement in introducing them to Israel that these were the gods who brought them up out of the land of Egypt. It's a sin of astounding magnitude, and yet even as that was Jeroboam's sin, we are told that, that Ahab went further as if it had been a light thing to walk in the sins of Jeroboam. Now, what could you do that would be worse than setting up a new pair of golden calves and declaring to Israel that these are the gods who brought them up out of the land of Egypt? What could be worse? My answer is actually right here in the text, marrying Jezebel. Let's just say she's no Susie Spurgeon. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Jezebel, the woman he took his wife, was the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. Now, every word in this is, is, is laden with meaning. And by the way, some of you are wondering, I know, I know some of you, because some of you some of you had Sunday school teachers or you had parents, you lived in a church that did not believe in diphthongs. Some of you right now don't have a clue what I'm talking about. <laughs> uh, to, a, a diphthong is a doubled vowel, each of which is supposed to be pronounced. I was raised in a context where I had a very southern pronunciation of an idol. This was Baal. <laughs> and, uh, and, 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 but, but, the Canaanites would not have recognized Canaan. I don't know what you're thinking right now, be Canaanite, but that's not actually a diphthong. <laughs> Baal is the, 
Baal is the diphthong, and, and so it is Baal, okay? So his, the, 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 the king of Sidon's name was Ethbaal. And so you see the idolatry even into the entire regime. There's, there's a geopolitical background to this, which is the fact that Israel was probably seeking to make an idolatrous peace agreement with the Phoenicians. This is the way it, it happened. You married off your daughter, and, and, and in, just in case you think that's limited to the Canaanites and the Phoenicians and First Kings, this is basically European history. You, uh, you marry off your daughter in order to uh, declare a, a new era of peace with, with another kingdom, and, and, and that's, what, that's what Ahab did. But Jezebel is, is the daughter of, of a Phoenician who's not merely an idolater, but this is a context in which royalty was involved in the cultists of idolatry. And, and for instance, Jeffrey Bromley, a historical theologian, points to the fact that that in Phoenicia, in the, in the particular worship of, of, of idols in Phoenicia, daughters of the king, princesses, were the priestesses of the religion. So when you're talking about Jezebel, you're not just talking about a devotee. You're talking about a priestess. And, and things get worse, but they're also evident in the text because Ahab seems to know that he is marrying a priestess because he sets up for her all the cultic apparatus, including an altar in Samaria. Jezebel. Just, just the name sends shivers down your spine. Uh, it, it is probably the most infamous female name in all of Scripture. And here she is. Ahab married her as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, he sinned further, was more evil than all of those who came before him. Now, Canaanite religion, what, what, what is it? Well, Canaanite religion, in its, uh, its syncretistic idolatry, was extremely focused upon the fertility cycle which is to say it ritualized sex. And, and this is very evident in the Old Testament. So you have Baal, who was a male deity, and seeing him, you'd have no question. And you had the Asherah, or Astarte, uh, very similar to Egyptian uh, gods as well, and, and goddesses. And you'd have no question she's female. Everything was exaggerated. Everything was horribly, occultically sexualized. And uh, the fertility cycle was so important, and sex is so powerful that they basically turned this entire, entire system into uh, ritualized sex. That, that, that's in the Old Testament, too. That's why Israel's warned that it cannot do what the Canaanites are doing under every green tree in cultic prostitution and all the rest. Well, the point is that everybody would have known exactly what is involved in the worship of the Esherah and the Baals. The, the other thing to know about Baal is that it was believed that he spoke. That's also in the background of this text that many people won't recognize. If you just kind of read it and, you're, and you read it quickly and you don't put it in the context, and even the context I'm describing becomes evident when you read the Old Testament and you see certain references, there's something else in the background here, and that is that Baal was thought to speak in thunder. 
So in, in keeping with the power worship, the, uh, the entire image of Baal, he was thought to speak in thunder. What does thunder accompany? Lightning. What does lightning cause? Fire, okay? You can see some of the background that's already here, which becomes a part of the dynamic of this passage as it unfolds. But the sexuality at the center of this is important enough that I just want to mention this, that the only fire break to unbridled sexuality is monotheism in written revelation. That's it. You don't find, you don't find the, the objective understanding of sexual morality outside monotheism and revealed religion. And uh, I'll simply make it a principle. I think it's verifiable in Scripture. You're either going to worship God or you're going to worship sex. Now, you can try to find all kinds of mediating positions, but eventually you're either going to worship God or you're going to worship sex, power, or the, the entire network of what goes together. Now, you'll notice I said monotheism and, and a claim of revelation, and that, that's, by the way, why, in, in this odd little footnote I'll add here, the, the, uh, the three very influential world religions, just to put it that way, that, uh, that hold to an objective understanding of, of sex and morality are Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, each of which is monotheistic, and each of which looks to acclaimed revelation. Now, this is also why Islam looks at the world very differently than we do, because Islam separates the world basically into the world of Islam under the rule of the Quran and the world at war, which is to be brought under the rule of the Quran. That's the basic distinction. But as a part of that, prior to that, Islam makes the distinction between uh, people of the book who are God believers and those who are not. That's why throughout the history of Muslim domination, you had, uh, you, you had a kind of Muslim respect for Judaism and for Christianity that was not accorded to anyone else who was just called a heretic and a God denier. Now, at uh, the Ask Anything event I, I was privileged to do at University of Southern California just a few days ago, I had a Muslim stand and say that, that, that he, he took offense uh, at, at my presentation of the gospel, and he said, shouldn't we just let God sort it all out at the end when God will divide the God believers from the unbelievers? And I said, well, I firmly believe God will sort it out in the end, but he has told us exactly how he will sort it out in the end. And it has everything to do with Christ. But Christians don't divide the world between monotheists and everyone else. We divide the world between those who know Christ and everyone else. We don't believe in salvation by any mere monotheism. But we do see the pattern. We do, we do understand that when you deny monotheism, then, well, you've got Jezebel eventually. Now, I also want us to note that uh, th this means we have to be really clear about what biblical, scriptural monotheism is. Just think of the first commandment. It is not, you shall have all other gods before me, but you shall have no other gods before me. That's a crucial distinction, because I think there are a lot of people who think they're Christians who are not monotheists, they're henotheists. Again, look it up, not now. But henotheism means there's a hierarchy of, 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 of gods. 
and uh, that the, the, the greatest God is at the very top of that hierarchy. So technically, for instance, Mormonism would be a form of henotheism. But we don't believe in henotheism. We believe in monotheism. We're not saying that, that the God of the Bible is greater than every other God. You shall have all other gods before me. That They are all under my feet. We're saying that they are nothing. They don't exist. God said in the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, here we also have to understand the logic of polytheism. There's a logic to it. Otherwise, people wouldn't be attracted to polytheism. The logic of, of polytheism, which is an offense at, at monotheism, comes down to this. How can one God be the, ex, the sole sufficient explanation for everything? How can one God explain good and evil, poverty and wealth, sickness and health? How can one God I- I explain it all? Uh, polytheism has a certain logic to it. You have a God for this and a God for that. You have a male deity, you have a female deity. You have a God of war, you have a God of peace. This is, you know, classical polytheism. You got a God for everything. By the time you get to Acts chapter 17, Paul will say you even have an altar to the unknown God because there's something you haven't realized you need yet. Just hedging the bets. We also have to understand why monotheism is so horribly offensive to people in the modern age. It's because it is so incompatible with modern, hyper-modern thinking to be told there's one anything, that there's one way, that there's one truth, that, that, that we're in a culture that's so allergic to that, they cannot believe we actually mean it when we say it. And if they do believe that we mean it when we say it, then we're to be feared and avoided, written out of bounds. Gore Vidal, the late novelist, said that all of the oppression in the world comes down to people who believe in an all-knowing, omnipotent, singular sky god. In other words, all the, all, all the people telling people, you shall not do that, it's because of belief in some omnipotent, omniscient sky god, and that's pathological. We need to be rid of it. Stuart Hampshire, professor of philosophy. He says that the greatest, uh, the greatest obstacle to human liberation and human freedom is this vestigial monotheism. Um, you can also understand, by the way, the, the, the logic of idolatry. Idols are extremely convenient. You can understand why there, there, there appears to be such an urge to idolatry as reflected in the history of Israel, and we should reflect upon ourselves as we look at our society and then interrogate our own hearts. Why is, it, why, is a, why is an idol convenient? Number one, you can see it. If I had time, we'd just look at the text of Scripture in which we are reminded that we believe in a God whom we have not seen. Be very convenient to see a God. Then you can look at it to make sure. Is he still there? Yeah, he's still there. Yeah. Uh, the logic of idolatry also goes to the fact that, that idols are portable. At least some of them are. Some of them are too big to carry around. But generally, idols are portable. You can take it with you. If you're a nomadic people, your idol can go with you. If you, uh, if, frankly, if you're a world traveler, stick it in the suitcase. Your idol, your idol can go with you. Idols are tangible. You can feel them. The, 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 the reality of this idol, whether it's a carved object or whatever, in, insofar as it's a physical object, it's tangible and it's manageable, and it's servable. And we want to serve. We, 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 God has made us in His image as spiritual beings. There is, a, there is an urge to serve God. 
And if we're not serving the one true and living God in the way that he commands, we're going to try to serve some other God. And uh, again, you see this in, in Acts chapter 17 where Paul says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Well, Elijah confronts Ahab, and, and, and then you'll notice he, it's declared that, that Elijah is the troubler of Israel. Elijah. Then you notice Elijah just so quickly turns and says, I'm not the trouble of Israel, troubler of Israel, you are. I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because, notice his indictment, you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. What an indictment. And when you think about our predicament in the culture and what faithfulness requires of us, recognize that we are in the very same position that Elijah was in. We're being told that we are the troublers of Israel. Now, notice when Ahab said to Elijah, you are the troubler of Israel, he meant it when he said it. He believed it. In his view, Elijah, who shows up with this monotheistic, biblical, command-centered, particular theology is the troubler of Israel. Just get with it, Elijah. Get with the syncretism. Get with the, get with the peace with the Phoenicians. Get with the, the new altars. Get with Jeroboam's golden calves. Just get with it. But Elijah won't get with it. And, 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 and so Elijah is identified as a troubler of Israel. Elijah skillfully and directly throws it back on the king, and he says, you're the troubler of Israel because this is a theological issue, and you are the heretic. You're the one who has broken the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. And then, as you know, Ahab, simply confronted by Elijah, ends up doing what Elijah tells him to do. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Yikes. And Ahab does what Elijah had commanded. But the second movement is Elijah confronting Israel. In verse 20, we're told, Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel, and Elijah came near to all the people and said, so, so Ahab as king calls together the convocation at Mount Carmel, but the next movement is not Ahab and Elijah. It's not Elijah and the prophets of Baal. The next movement is Elijah confronting not the prophets of Baal, nor Ahab, but Israel gathered together. And, and, and look at what he says. He indicts them. How long will you go on limping between two different opinions? What an amazing indictment. Limping between two different opinions. Elijah makes very clear that the children of Israel are just as guilty as their king, only less courageous. They keep on limping between two opinions. Now, just again, if we had more time, the literary structure of the text, the, the prophets of Baal will go limping around the altar. There's a lot of limping going on in this text, and none of it good. 
The, the Bible does not honor limping uh, in, in a theological sense at all. How long will you go on limping between two opinions? And, and then he makes the issue very clear. If, if God is God, then follow Him. If Baal, then follow Him. It's just an incredible clarity. But don't miss the math. Uh, the math here is important. You remember that Obadiah, earlier we are told, is hidden away 100 prophets of God by 50s. He's hidden them away in a cave, and he's feeding them with bread and water. Again, a very interesting reference to other biblical texts you can hear, and you know the bread and the water, but the, 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 the prophets are hidden in the cave. Again, hold your breath for chapter 19 about caves, interesting parallel structure. No time to look at that further. The important thing is that actually the Lord has 101 prophets, but only one here. There are 101 prophets, 100 of them are in a cave. Two groups of 50, they're out of the picture. Now there's one, and on the other side, 450 prophets of Baal and 400 of the Asherah. It's 850 to one. Very, very interesting. Elijah confronts Israel, indicts them for their unfaithfulness, accuses them of limping between two different positions, and the people say in response, nothing. They're not only limping between two opinions, they don't have an answer to the prophet. Now, again, literary structure, very interesting. The Baal does not speak. And at this point, the people of Israel don't speak. Now you see there's a whole lot of not speaking going on. But in this case, it's the people of Israel, the children of Israel, who, guilty of syncretism and idolatry and of limping between two opinions, they don't answer a word. But, but, but then Elijah lays out his proposal. And after he lays out his proposal, then the people answered, it is well spoken, which is not a great word of conviction at all. Because they make very clear they're actually going to wait on which God answers to see which God they will follow. When, when they said it's well spoken, that is no confession of faith. That is simply a bring it on. Let's see what that looks like. We'll find out if Baal is God. And if he is, we'll follow him. We'll find out if, if, if the Lord is God, we will follow him. The third movement in the text is Elijah confronting the prophets of Baal. This is the part we all know best. This is, this is Elijah in the battle of the gods. He confronts the prophets of Baal in verses 25 through 29 in the text. Verse 25, then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull. You know this verse. You prepare it first. You're many. Call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. So he's giving them the first opportunity. He's also giving them the greatest amount of time. He's giving them ample opportunity to demonstrate that Baal is the, is the true God. He, Baal's got plenty of time. They've got plenty of time to set everything up. Uh, and, and, and they get the first go. And, and so if Baal answers, hey, it's over. The, 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 the event's over. The debate's over. By the very logic that Elijah presented to the children of Israel, they're going to go follow Baal. The prophets of Baal also are very interesting here. They seem not to resist the challenge. In other words, they're so committed to their idolatry, 
uh, they walk right into Elijah's trap. And they do what they do. That's actually what the Hebrew says. They do what they do. That's what idolaters do. They do what they do. It's right here in the passage. And and they do what they do. They called upon Baal. They took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar. There's the limping again. They limped around the altar. They limped around the altar that they had made, and at noon, Elijah mocked them. I would give anything to have been there. I, I, I know how tempting it is to mock. I know how delicious sarcasm is. It's one of the reasons we should be so wary of it as preachers. It needs to be extremely rare, used very sparingly, and never to our personal advantage or someone else's personal disadvantage. But in the battle of the gods at Mount Carmel, sarcasm is the only proper response. And Elijah is an artist with it. (laughs) Elijah knows the Canaanite theology. He knows what to say. He knows how to say it. Never has mockery been so skillfully displayed as Elijah against the prophets of Baal. At noon, Elijah mocked him. This is noon. So they've had hours, hours of doing what they do, hours of limping around the altar, hours of calling out to Baal, answer us, hours of doing what they do. They're going to do more in a minute, but doing what they do thus far until Elijah mocks them. What does he say? You know this, and you already love it. (laughs) Cry aloud, for he's a God. You think he has ears listening to you? Then cry out. Maybe you need to cry out a little longer. Maybe a little louder. Either he's musing or he's relieving himself or he's on a journey or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. Oh, my goodness. The one true and living God doesn't eat. He doesn't relieve himself. He is not moody, and he does not sleep. Psalm 121, verse 4, Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. We don't have to worry that the one true and living God is moody or contemplative, musing, or relieving himself. And, and you look at that and you say, oh, that's a low blow. That sounds like Martin Luther talking about the Pope. And, and, and it does sound like Martin Luther talking about the Pope, and I'm not going to say it here. Again, you've got to look that up. So, so why would he say that? Why would he say that? It's, why, why talk about something the proper word here would be scatological. <laughs> Look it up. <laughs> the, the, 
why would he do this? It's because if you're going to have an idol, you're going to have an idol. If he has eyes and ears and a nose, and if he's got everything it takes to make clear your fertility worship, then guess what? He's got to have an outhouse too. You want an idol? You got an idol. Maybe that's what he's doing. Now, I would also love to have been there, and that's because I would wish to have seen this. I'd like to watch Israel while this is happening. What is Israel thinking? But as the passage continues on very quickly, they raved on. It's a definition of false worship, which also indicts the fact that in our emotional age, there are some who claim to be Christians that worship in a rave. There are are those who even claim some kind of identical identity, and they worship in a rave. It's the idolaters who rave. Incoherent, overly emotional, mosh pit worship is not Christianity, it's paganism. And this is where you see it right here. They raved on. And and the prophet of God never raves on, and the people of God never rave on. All the raving is done by the idolaters. Now, I want you to know something else very quickly. There's a threefold pattern here about the emptiness of idolatry. It comes at the end of this, as, as you look at these central verses in the chapter. Verse 29 And the midday passed. They raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. Look at this. There's a pattern here. You're going to need to notice it. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. There's a threefold pattern in the text. There's a threefold watering of the the altar that's coming. There is a threefold indictment here of the emptiness of idolatry. There are three different statements made. One, there was no voice. Second, no one answered. Third, no one paid attention. There was no voice. Here's one of the issues of the difference between the worship of the one true and living God and the worship of idols. Idols are seen, but the one true and living God is not seen. He is heard. He is heard. That is why our worship essentially takes the form of words. Because the rightful worship of the one true and living God who speaks is, as my brother Ligon Duncan made so clear last night, the worship that is regulated by his word. And it's the worship that brings its climactic moment to the preaching of God's word. When we don't believe that preaching, when it's authentic and coming from the scripture is genuinely biblical preaching, it's not the preacher speaking, it's God speaking through his word, through the preacher to his people. Now, while I'm at it, just taking a few minutes, this is one of the major issues in the Reformation. This is why Martin Luther described, given the the sola scriptura, the the, the word-centeredness of the Reformation, this is why Martin Luther said that God's house is to be a moot house, a mouth house. It's about preaching. It's about singing hymns. It's about ordered words. Most importantly, it is about the reading and about the preaching of the Word of God. The true house of God is a mouth house. It is not an eye house. Because what Luther was responding to was the basic instinct and intuition of Catholic worship was, come see this. See this overpowering drama of the mass. Come see this. Overpowering visuals. Come see this. Even come smell this. 
And, and, and Luther said, no, it's, it's not. The worship of the one true living God is not come see this. It is come hear God speak. The church is a mouth house pointing to the gift of revelation and the vocation of preaching. By the way, one of my favorite historical assessments about the Reformation is said by someone who's not a believer but was uh, trying to understand what happened in the church, in Germany in particular, what happened being explained only by the Reformation. His name is Peter Blickle. He asked a question that has captured my attention for a very long time. He asked this question, why did people around 1515 want to see the body of Christ in the Eucharist, but about around 1525 demand to hear the Word of God? Isn't that an interesting question? How in a 10-year period of time could people who came expecting to see what they were told was the body of Christ in the Eucharist instead, in just a decade, come to demand the preaching of the Word of God? The historian doesn't have an answer. He said, no one has produced a plausible answer to this question, much less an adequate one. On this point, I admit to being as ignorant as anyone else. Well, I want to offer a suggested answer. The Word of God transforms. And it is appetitive. When people begin to hear the Word of God, an appetite for the Word of God develops. The authentic people of God want more of it, and eventually they demand it. I think we do have an explanation for why that happened. The fourth movement is Elijah preaching to Israel. So he has confronted Israel. He has, he has confronted the prophets of Baal. And by the way, doing what they do, you recall, we don't have time to look at this in detail. They begin to cut themselves. They begin to bleed. It's, 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 a, it's, it's an orgiastic, grotesque, bloody mess. They do what they do, but there is no voice. No one answers. No one pays attention. But then in this, this fourth movement, verses 30 through 35, Elijah the prophet says to the people, come near to me. Come near to me. Come near. And, and don't you imagine the trepidation with which they came near? But they did. And, and, and Elijah speaks to them in verses 30 and following. All the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down at Mount Carmel. He repaired the altar of the Lord. This is reformation happening before Israel. Israel watched as they came near. They watched the prophet rebuild the altar of God. He reestablishes biblical worship, the true worship of the one true and living God. He takes 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came saying, Israel shall be your name. It is a reaffirmation of the covenant. It is all being demonstrated there. It's not an accident. Nothing is an accident. 12 stones representing the 12 tribes, reminding Israel the covenant was made with them by the God who did bring them up out of the land of Egypt. And he rebuilds the altar. And, and, and then you know how it, how it continues. He he builds the altar, he builds it with stone in the name of the Lord. He made a trench about the altar. He fills the trench with water. He puts the wood in order. He, he cut the bowl in pieces. And you recall the, the, the threefold waterings. Do it a second time. They did it a second time. Do it a third time. And they did it a third time. Again, a threefold pattern. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. The fifth movement 
is Elijah praying to God. It's not Elijah confronting Ahab. It's not Elijah confronting the people. It's not Elijah confronting the prophets. It's not Elijah preaching to the people. It is Elijah the prophet of prayer, praying to the one true and living God. Verses 36 through 40. You also notice that Elijah is not, he, 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 he's not freelancing this. He, he is doing this according to the regulations of the command of God. This is, this, is, this, is the, this is the regulative principle right here. At the time of the offering, at the right time, not, not at the time of Elijah's choosing, at the time of the offering, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he names God. This is not to whom it may concern. This is a prayer to the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And, and notice his prayer. It isn't first, vindicate me. It is first, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Again, threefold. Remember the first threefold? There was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah prays a threefold prayer. Number one, let it be known that you our God in Israel. Two, that I am your servant. And three, this is very important, that I have done all these things at your word. This is not my plan. This was God's plan through Elijah. Elijah didn't set this up. God set this up through Elijah. And Elijah wants the people of God to know this, which is a wonderful reminder, a convicting reminder for all of us who are preachers of the word of God. We didn't come up with this. This is not our brilliant plan. This is God's sovereign, perfect, holy plan to feed his people through the preaching of his word. He wants the people to know that the Lord is God. And then notice the affirmation of God's sovereignty here. Look at this. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Who's the Lord of the heart? Who's the sovereign? Who explains, who is the soul sufficient explanation for how anyone repents of sin? Who is the sole sufficient explanation for how anyone comes to faith in Christ? He didn't say, please try to woo back the hearts of your people. God, you've got a great opportunity here. You do this right, and you just might win some votes. No, he says, you do this, please, God, I pray you're going to do this so you can show that you're God and that you have sovereignly, omnipotently turned the hearts of the people back to you. Then the fire fell. Too many preachers preaching this text just want to get quickly to the fire falling. Well, the fire falls. The, 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 the fire comes. And, 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 you know, it comes with a magnificent show of divine power. Uh, even though when the, the prophets of all raved on, cut themselves, there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Now when the fire falls, it consumes everything. 
It consumes everything. It, and and it, 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 it's such an utterly comprehensive display of God's power. We are told when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. So what happened? They, Elijah's prayer was absolutely answered just as he asked it, show that you are God in Israel and that you have turned the hearts of the people back to yourself. And the, te- the text doesn't end there. This, this fifth movement in the text does not end there. It ends at the brook Kishon. And, uh, and we are told that Elijah said, not, let not one of those idolatrous prophets escape. And he brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. That is not our assignment. It's not... It's not, but it was God's assignment to Elijah. It shows what God thinks of idolatry. It is a demonstration of the judgment that surely is coming upon all those who worship not the one true and living God, the way he demands to be worshiped through the Son through whom he redeems sinners. So what do we say to this? Well, I would argue, as you already see, that this is a portrait of authentic ministry. Uh, Elijah is not a superhero, but we gain so much encouragement for ministry by looking at this. When, when, when we are told we're the troubler of Israel, we need to remember that was said of Elijah. And, and, and Elijah rightly turned the tables and said to Ahab, no, you and your idolatry, you're the troubler of Israel. Elijah's not a superhero. Just, just look to the next chapter, my goodness. Um, superheroes do not follow great victories by going right into the cave where the other 100 prophets were out of commission. Oh, and by the way, God speaks there too. Speaks. He doesn't show himself. He speaks through the sound of a low whisper in chapter 19, verse 12. I don't care who you are as a pastor. You're going to have few Mount Carmel moments, if any. So don't read this text and think, that's what I'm going to do Sunday. <laughs> Just let me get to the pulpit, and I'm going to draw a direct line from the pulpit to the Brook Kishon. <laughs> no, when you get to the pulpit, let the fire fall, but the fire is the Word of God. But even as you will probably not have many Mount Carmel moments, if any, you are going to have many caves on Mount Horeb moments, if you're honest. And and then again, we draw encouragement from Elijah. I do. But in conclusion, I want to remind us that we hear more of Elijah almost at the very end of the New Testament. In the book of James, chapter 5, verses 13 through 17, where James explains, holding up Elijah as a model of prayer, that he was a man with a nature like ours. Now, that does not mean he was just an ordinary man. I mean, as compared to other human beings. Any more than preachers are just ordinary men. God has to gift preachers with the gifts of preaching. And, and he's the explanation for why preachers are equipped to preach. But 
It's not that Elijah is just an ordinary person as if anyone off the street is just commissioned to preach the Word of God. It is that he had a nature just like ours. Not a superhero, just a prophet. But how do you say just a prophet? We are living in a time in which every gospel preacher is going to be accused of being the troubler of Israel or the, trouble, the troubler of the United States or the troubler of the state of California, the troubler of wherever you are. One of my favorite quotes from Leon Trotsky, how's that? I'm just going to go out on a limb and think I'm probably the first person to cite Leon Trotsky from the pulpit of Grace Community Church. <laughs> One of the favorite quotes attributed to Leon Trotsky is where he said, you may not be interested in war, but war is interested in you. Well, take that from a Bolshevik revolutionary. You may not be looking for trouble, but trouble is looking for you. And when you look to a passage like 1 Kings 18 and all that is contained therein, you're going to know this. You're going to know this with confidence. You're going to know this with encouragement from Elijah. When you're not interested in trouble, but trouble is interested in you, you're going to know just what to do. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for every word of Scripture you have given us, including and especially this passage tonight. May it be used in our hearts to conform us to the image of Christ, and it is in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.